Friday evening, Andy and I went to services at Temple Concord. The rabbi had just returned from a special pilgrimage. Twenty rabbis from around the country had joined together to <coughs> go to countries in Europe that had been the site of uh, the oppression and tyranny of the Nazi era. And they went to one of the concentration camps and many, many synagogues, some of which were really just empty, beautiful but empty um, buildings and some that were actually being used. But as you know, most of the Jews of Europe were wiped out. A few were able to be saved and returned to Hungary or Austria, other places, but their um, <coughs> trip was a very interesting one, particularly when they went to meet with a rabbi of one of the temples. And he said, you think you've come here to learn about the past. But what you're really here for is to know your own future. Of course, they were all very aware of what has been going on in this country with various edicts and pronouncements and appointments. And it was hard for anyone not to see the correspondences that were eerily reminiscent of the early days of the Nazi regime. So they were quite taken aback by hearing that, by hearing that it was uh, something that they needed to redirect their attention to in a new way. And well, after his uh, sermon, while we were going through various prayers in the book, I came upon one that I wanted to share with you because I think, although it's uh, using Jewish language, it's something we can all really take to heart. It goes like this. Disturb us, Adonai. Who is Adonai? Hmm? Word for God. Disturb us, Adonai. Now, most of the prayers are prayers of worship and thanks and uh, asking to be enveloped in the loving kindness of this. Right? This one is saying, disturb us. Ruffle us from our complacency. 
make us dissatisfied. Dissatisfied with the peace of ignorance. The quietude which arises from a shunning of the horror, the defeat, the bitterness, the poverty, physical and spiritual of humans. Shock us, Adonai. Deny to us the false Shabbat, the false day of holiness, which gives us the delusions of satisfaction amid a world of war and hatred. Wake us, O God, and shake us from the sweet and sad poignancies rendered by half-forgotten melodies and rubric prayers of yesteryears. Make us know that the border of the sanctuary is not the border of living, and the walls of your temples are not shelters from the winds of truth, justice, and reality. Disturb us, O God, and vex us. Let not your Shabbat be a day of torpor and slumber. Let it be a time to be stirred and spurred to action. Shocking prayer, huh? And I wanted to bring this today because I think that it's easy to fall into that kind of torpor when we think of um, our own practice as somehow a retreat from the fray. Yes? A chance to just ignore what's going on and feel a little better, a little less uh, disturbed. And so I was thinking about Tisarana. Now this um, says, your temples are not shelters. When we chant Tisarana, the three refuges, the three shelters, what do we really mean by that? The usual translation is Buddham Sanam Gachami is what? I take refuge in Buddha. I take refuge in Buddha. And what do we really take refuge in when we say that? Are we taking refuge in some kind of um, being that will keep us safe from harm? Or are we saying, I take refuge in my own awakening mind, in my willingness to see, to explore deeply, to understand what it means? to be awake, what it means not to shy away from the challenges of being awake. Mm 
Ram Dhaman Gachami. What does that mean? When you take refuge in Dharma, what does it really mean? You give your life to the Dharma. When you give your life to the Dharma, what are you giving your life to? Is any being left out of that truth to which you are giving yourself? You cannot allow yourself to see it in a dualistic way. It incorporates everyone without exception. Sangam Saranam Gachami. Who is the Sangha? The people you're sitting with in this room? Where do we draw the line? The good guys? The ones who voted for Clinton? Sometimes we really feel as though that's the way we have to live our lives. This dualistic separation. But when we really understand giving our lives to all beings, it's very different, isn't it? We can't make these convenient distinctions. And we can't say, I'm going to take refuge from a world that is in such turmoil that I cannot bear to be a part of it any longer. Yes, I too, as I said, wanted to go to Canada November 9th. <laughs> and I too find that opening up my email is a very painful process. Not just because of what I see there from the various organizations that I care about, the latest descriptions of the latest edicts, but because there's a general prevailing attitude of a kind of um, impatience and unkindness that comes through. Even people you might feel are very much a part of your life, sometimes you get these emails and you're just like, what? Where did that come from? So much misunderstanding and so much knee-jerk expression of that misunderstanding. And so many people are sick. Well, you can say it's that season. But I think, as Vimala Kirti said, we are sick because of our ignorance. Because we are trying to protect ourselves as separate from the rest of the world. And there is no way to ward off these germs. Hmm? 
So to pray, to be disturbed, to pray not to feel as though there is some kind of separate comfort that we can enter into and ignore what's going on. It's quite a prayer. Maybe nobody wants to pray that prayer. Nobody wants that interpretation of tisarana. We come here for respite and renewal, we often say. But when we chant our great vows for all, it's clear that they apply to all beings. And when we point fingers of accusation, are we eliminating those we're accusing from the opening lines of what we just chanted, which are? Sentient beings are fundamentally Buddhist. Does it say only sentient beings on my side? This is so very difficult, right? All sentient beings. So what do we do? We say how important it is to just sit, to really awaken. This is so urgent. When we awaken to this Buddha mind, we are not awakening to segregation. Of course, nobody here would see racial segregation as something that we would find an important result of our Buddha mind. In fact, we awaken to how prevalent it is, right? So what I mean is we're not, we're not awakening to excluding, segregating those who don't agree with us from our own understanding. This is so difficult, isn't it? How do we stand up against, how do we resist injustice and at the same time know this oneness of being? This is the challenge for us all. This is the Bodhisattva challenge. Living in duality is so much easier, isn't it? There's a koan, case 43 of the Mumonkan, that some of you know, the gateless barrier. Case 43 is Shuzan's Shippe. Shippe is a, a staff of um, official responsibility. So he holds up this staff. And he says, if you call this a shippe, you oppose its reality. If you do not call it 
a shipe. You ignore the fact. Tell me, what will you call it? <sighs> This is our dilemma. political situation right now, the human situation right now, writ large, is this dilemma. If we call it, let's just use a word, a kind of temporary fill-in word, but you can think of your own. Uh, if we call it tyranny, Maybe a little early to call it, but let's just call it that, all right? If you call it tyranny, you oppose its reality. What is its reality? All beings are sentient, or all sentient beings are beings. Right, so to call someone whose decrees are felt as oppression, okay, that is opposing the reality. But if you do not call it, then what? If you ignore the fact, what happens? Hmm? It gets worse. And this is what these rabbis were being told. Go back to your own country. Look at the future of your own country. Are you calling reality? Are you ignoring the fact? That's what we all are being called to look at. If we simply raise our voices out of emotional reactivity, consternation, and frenzy, what happens? We suffer. Hmm? We suffer. Say it louder. We suffer. We suffer. And not only we suffer, right? The suffering is spread everywhere. Instead of being able to have a benign or helpful influence, We create new consternation, new waves of frenzied reactivity, right? More edicts. And more <laughs> edicts, right? More decrees. More bans. More tweets. Hmm? <laughs> more tweets. More tweets. <laughs> And the latest, you know, to give all of the giant fossil fuel companies carte blanche. 
overturn every piece of legislation for the environment. And banking. Huh? And banking as well. Yeah. Banking, you name it. Yeah. Big business. So, can we ignore that? So what do we do? This is really an important time. What will we call it? How do we resist from the intimacy with unity instead of dualism? Only that kind of resistance is going to have a strong positive outcome. The Dalai Lama would call the Chinese, my friend, the enemy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, to be able to say that, to be able to bow and really sincerely see that in these uh, oppressors are Buddhas. He's a wonderful model for us. When we come from this depth of samadhi that we can experience through this practice, the awakening that can occur through diligent, consistent practice, what we feel first and foremost is our interconnectedness. Not friend versus enemy. And when we feel that interconnectedness, there is what welling up? What comes from that? Compassion. Compassion. This is so important. There's a little book that um, is called The Elixir of Immortality. A friend of ours uh, translated. It's an old text, Tibetan text, a Mahayana mind training manual. And uh, he quotes uh, one of these texts speaking about generating great compassion. When one thoroughly possesses that magnanimous mind, which naturally wishes that suffering never come to any sentient being, in the same way that one has a natural compassion that wishes no kind of harm to come to one's own beloved child, only then does it deserve the name of great compassion. Thus, by the power of habituating oneself to great compassion and promising to lead all sentient beings without exception, this is the nature of the aspiration toward complete, perfect, highest enlightenment and requires no other force but that. And he comments, the mind of enlightenment is natural and spontaneous. 
and does not require prompting by others. Such genuine compassion finds any kind of suffering of sentient beings pervading space, unbearable, and wishes to eliminate all suffering and accomplish every kind of happiness for them. By no means does it ever dream of relaxing for a single instant until that is accomplished. This is actually a very wonderful reminder for us because it's, I think in all of us there's a, a wish to take some time off. No, just enough already. I want to just hang out. Just have a nice time. Not think about all that stuff. Turn it all off. I'm not talking about turning off, you know, electronics. I mean, turning it off in your own awareness. Turning off this great suffering great need for our attention, for our true compassion. I gave compassion yesterday at the office. <laughs> Today, I just don't want to be bothered. This kind of feeling is what he is saying. Cannot. When we really give ourselves as giving our lives, as you said, the translation for Tisarana. When we really give ourselves this way, that is the only way that our bodhisattva vow can be actualized. Then we see this interweaving of reality and fact, then it is no longer oppose, ignore, oppose, ignore, which is the usual way we live, oppose, ignore. To realize this oneness of reality and fact, to act from that reality in the world of what seems like dualistic facts makes it very different. Makes our action very different. And out of our deep, loving, compassionate hearts, right action comes Naturally, it's not something we conjure. It's not something we figure out. It's not something we look to others to tell us how to be. And this requires what? Trust, right? This requires faith in the practice. This requires that we do it with this feeling of urgency but that we don't examine it or evaluate it to see, are we there yet? 
are we really able to act completely, compassionately, without the nagging doubts? Maybe not. So what do we do? I think it requires the honesty with how we live our own lives. And in a way, this is showing a huge magnifying glass to you know, the conveniences that we have that may become a result of somebody else's suffering. It is really this the situation we find ourselves in now as a nation is definitely like a magnifying glass to our own lives and to what we've conveniently been able to ignore. All the facts we've ignored out of our complacency and apathy because they're easier to live with, right? Yes, you're absolutely right. And as a matter of fact, in, Bodhi, in Bodhisattva's vow, we, uh, we have a whole section about being warm and compassionate toward people we may see as fools or anything else you want to use, any other uh, name for them. Maybe not fools, maybe very smart, but very dangerous <coughs> politicians. Be warm and compassionate toward them. And you may say, how can I possibly be warm and compassionate toward someone who is afflicting so many people, who is guaranteeing further suffering? This is the challenge of the Bodhisattva's vow. And we have to look at that. And then, that whole section about what if this person turn against us and abuse and persecute us. Well, when we see that refugees are us, that immigrants are us, that Muslims are us, that homeless are us, that addicts are us, it's us, right? No one's left out. What then? We should bow down with humble words. No way in hell am I going to bow down. Well, look at that. Look at that emotion that jumps out and bites you in the ass. In the reverent belief that they are the merciful avatars of Buddha. The ones we point at most fervently as bad, they are the merciful avatars of Buddha. This is what you're talking about, to really look at our own lives and see, what did we do that has produced this? Didn't just happen. Merciful avatars of Buddha who uses devices to emancipate us from our ignorance, All those inconvenient truths we gave lip service to, produced and accumulated upon ourselves through our own egoistic delusion and attachment, throughout the countless cycles of kapha. It's a long time. <laughs> 
We have to take responsibility for what's happening now. Our own egoistic delusion and attachment. Attachment primarily to comfort. Delusion primarily about all the ramifications of very serious situations that we couldn't possibly get involved in in ways that might have produced a different outcome. So here we are. This is, this is not to um, blame ourselves, okay? It's not about blame, it's about seeing this as a natural progression and that we now have the responsibility to what? To practice compassionate action and not to close our eyes, right? Not to see our practice as a shelter from the winds of truth, justice, and reality. To be willing to be disturbed out of our complacency. Well, it's not happening here. Well, it is happening here. And there's no border between here and there anyway. So, to resist oppression to resist injustice, to stand together, to make the phone calls, but to do it from this heart of compassion, then we may be able to see a true change, a needed change in the way things are going down. Is urgent. Hmm? It's urgent that we sit with all our might and that we act from all our compassion. <laughs>